If you have your Bibles, let's open up to Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1, and um, we'll be beginning in verse 18, specifically thinking about these unique or familiar passages that we are reading this season and the season of Christmas. This is one that might be completely familiar to you, and we're going to have an opportunity at the end of this um, service and at the end of the sermon to participate in the Lord's Supper, something familiar to us but also taking on a rich sense of the meaning of the presence of Jesus with us. So if you are at home, gather those elements around, and as we, at the end of the service, we'll be participating together in the Lord's, uh, the Lord's Supper. So let's open up to Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, and let's, um, as you find it, if you would, wherever you are, whether you are in your living room, your bedroom, your kitchen, wherever you're participating in our worship service this morning, if you would stand in honor of God and His Word. I think it's a beautiful thing that we're standing in our neighborhoods, in our, in our homes, we're standing in honor of God's word. Matthew 1, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. This is God's word. Amen and amen. You may take a seat. So Christmas is a time where not only do we revisit the familiar ornaments that go on our tree, the familiar Christmas decorations that adorn our house, but it's also a season where we revisit the familiar passages, the passages that give us a sense of normalcy. And I think during this season, it's particularly significant because so much around us has been disrupted that as we come back to these passages, they provide a sense of normalcy, but not just a sense of normalcy. I think it's important for us also to note that sometimes when we're in a season of disruption and when we're in a season where things are, um, that things are out of place, that sometimes we come to these passages with, a, with new eyes to recognize things that we had not recognized before. And so as we look at this passage, as we think about this passage, um, let's see what we recognize. And even maybe as I read it, there were things that you heard that you hadn't really recognized before. And that's the beauty of God's word. It stays the same. Even as the circumstances of our life change, when we come back to God's word, we can see new things in there. And so though it's a familiar passage and one that has been part of your Christmas seasons over the years, let's see if there's something new that we can see today. Now today, as we look at this passage, if you hadn't noticed, 
This passage tells the story of the birth of Jesus through the eyes of Joseph. Now, if you want to read Christmas stories, and on Christmas morning you open up your Bible, you're not going to go to John or Mark. Mark begins with John the Baptist. There is no birth account of Jesus. And the Gospel of John just begins, in the beginning was the Word. There's no birth narrative. There's no nativity scene. And so if you want to read the Christmas story, you can either go to Luke or Matthew. Luke tells the story really from the perspective of Mary. We don't hear much from Joseph. But Matthew has a particular interest in hearing the story of the birth of Jesus from the perspective of Joseph. So Matthew alone records that emphasis on Joseph. And let's hear what this has to say. Look at 118. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Now, there's something that we need to note that when we read the Christmas story that we are kind of getting in the wayback machine and we're crossing continents and cultures and going back. And the betrothal process in the ancient world is different than maybe our typical engagement process here in Western culture. Betrothal was really this legal binding agreement between a man and the family of a woman or the family of a young girl. And it would have been a, this legal contract in that the, the man would engage with the father of this young girl and work out a deal in terms of how this would all work. And if you want to read about that, we actually have passages from Jewish literature of the first and second century. It's called the Mishnah. And you can read in there about what the betrothal process was like. It was a more serious legal agreement than our understanding of engagement. And the man would work with the father to convince him of his own worth and then to receive the daughter and the dowry coming from the family. Now, the implication here, it says that Mary is the mother of Jesus. in, In the Gospel of Luke, it says that she is a young maiden and that she is of betrothal age. Now, the betrothal age of a young maiden, according to the Mishnah, is betrothal would take place at 12 and a half years old. So somewhere between 12 and 13 years old is when a young girl would be betrothed to a man. Then there would be a process. There would be about a one-year process, according to the Mishnah, about a one-year process from which that time that the young maiden would then begin to gather her dowry together through her family, to gather that together, and the young man would go to his house, the house of his father, and would begin to build an extension to the house that he lived in. And so usually that would happen that you would have a shared wall and the young man would, or the man would begin to build out a section from the wall and a shared wall with his his family, with his father's house, and then he would begin to build his own house. It's very interesting when you think about this betrothal language and the possibilities of this. um, When Jesus in the gospel of John says, um, in my father's house, there are many dwelling places and I go to prepare a place for you. Whether you know that or not, that's betrothal imagery. That Jesus says, my father's house, it's got many of these built-on rooms around it, and I'm going away, I'm going away, but I'm going away to, to build, to prepare a place for you. That's betrothal language. And so this idea, this, the imagery here is that as Jesus is away, we are the betrothed bride, that we're waiting for Jesus to return and to take us to himself right? So that's the idea of what's going on, that Mary is betrothed to Joseph, and Joseph is, they're in this period 
where the contract has been sealed, and now they're waiting. They're waiting until Mary can gather her dowry, Joseph can build whatever, whatever he needs to build. Now, this time of preparation being about a year, so Mary would, have, this, Mary would have been about 14 years old when they got married, but it says this in 118, before they came together, she was found to be with child. Now, God, the Gospel of Matthew adds she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. However, that is not how most people would have seen this. There were all, obviously, there are all sorts of explanations. I don't know if we need to go into all of them, but there are all sorts of explanations. Um, it, and even in the Mishnah, as it talks about these betrothal contracts, there are various reasons why these might be broken, and among them would have been the unfaithfulness of the bride. Or, or it, it, all, it even goes so far as to have un, uh, blemishes that, that come during this time, either on the man or the woman, that there would be different reasons to break these things off. Um, but in the first century, Mary shows up during this time of preparation, this time of betrothal, and she is with child, that either she had been unfaithful or she had been taken advantage of her, or maybe this is an occupied, Israel was an occupied nation from a foreign invader, maybe raped even by a Roman centurion, a Roman guard, or a Roman soldier. These were not uncommon things in the first century. This is a rough time. And there were many provisions if during this period of prepara preparation that the deal was broken or it was not what he had bargained for their means of ending the agreement. And what needed to happen if there was going to be an ending of the betrothal, there had to be a legal divorce. Even though they had not yet consummated the marriage, and that would have been after they, this year of preparation, they would consummate the marriage, and then the, 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 the bridegroom would take the bride into his own home. But even until that time, if they broke off the engagement, there needed to be a, a legal divorce, an annulment, if you will. The penalty for the girl could simply be that the betrothal would end and then later betrothed to another man, or it could be even be as severe as a death penalty for adultery, according to the Mishnah. It all depended really on the husband and the father. And we hear a little bit about what Joseph is like. We don't hear anything about Mary's father. But we do hear something about Joseph. Look at verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being just a man, sorry, being a just man, sorry, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, it states that Joseph was a just man. In other translations, you might have a translation that says that Joseph is a righteous man. Probably what this is saying is there was a shorthand way of saying in, the, in first century Judaism, if you were a good Jew and Torah observant, you were called a tzaddik. And tzaddik is the word for righteous, that you were a tzaddik, a righteous man. And Joseph is being called in this passage a tzaddik, which means that he's a, he's a good Torah-abiding, kosher-eating, good, generous Jewish man. He's a good Jewish boy, right? and that he is a righteous man. He's a just man. He's a tzaddik. 
And it was a shorthand way of just saying that Joseph was a good Jew. Now, we don't know much more about Joseph than this. He would have been older than Mary. We don't know exactly how old. Um, he would have been known as a tradesman. We learn later on that he is a, um, he's a builder. Some people take that he's a carpenter or maybe a stone worker. Later traditions about Joseph paint him as an older man. And part of this comes because later in the Gospels, we learn that Jesus has brothers and sisters. And there's different traditions about how those brothers and sisters come. The, the traditional understanding from the church, really the Catholic church, is that Joseph has children from another marriage. And that Joseph has been widowed, or is a widower, and Mary is being taken as a, as a wife, as a, as, a, as a next wife, because he's a widower. And the children that he has are from another, a previous marriage. Um, or Joseph could be, so a lot of times you'll see in art, in church art, Joseph will be depicted as older. And all of this might be because um, the idea that if you are interested in um, that Joseph and Mary, that Mary um, is a virgin when she gives birth to Jesus, and if you're interested theologically in the idea that there's a perpetual virginity, then you're not going to have Mary having children later on. So Joseph, all those children must come from another marriage from Joseph. So that's, that's the thing. Now, I, I don't particularly have any theological skin in the game that for a need for perpetual virginity of Mary, actually, in this passage, it seems to imply that Joseph will not sleep with her, will not consummate the marriage until after the baby is born. But the implication is after the baby is born that they would go on like a married couple um, in, any, in the first century, in first century Judaism. And so the idea is that whether Joseph is older or younger, whatever that is, it does imply that he is a just man. Now, both of those things are plausible, but he is a fine, upstanding, reliable, Torah-observant man ready to be married. And when he hears of the situation that Mary is pregnant, he knows the child is not his, and so he assumes one of the options that we had walked through whether she was unfaithful or whether she had been taken advantage of, neither is good. And so his description as a tzaddik has two competing sensibilities. Essentially, she is not to be the wife of a tzaddik. She's not a good wife for a, an honorable Jewish man. But on the other hand, if he does this publicly, she would be publicly shamed and perhaps her life would be over, literally. Or figuratively, she would be so ostracized. So what he would do, what it says, is that in 119, that being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So his option is that he would discreetly find the quietest two witnesses. You had, in order to have a legal divorce, you had to have two witnesses. So he would find the quietest two witnesses go through the divorce and annulment process and do it quietly and not publicly put her to shame. So Joseph is in a tough spot, not as tough a spot as Mary, let's be honest, but certainly he has been disrupted. I think for me, as I think about this passage and before we go on, I just want to, the one thing that stood out to me, again, this is a familiar passage, you've probably heard this hundreds, hundreds of times, you've heard this many times 
if you've been a believer, even if you've walked through Christmas, even if you don't know Jesus and you've heard this, pa- you've heard this passage many times before, it might be very familiar to you. The one thing that stood out to me in this season is just how disrupting this is to Joseph. This is told from Joseph's perspective. It certainly is disrupting to Mary, but Matthew wants us to think about Joseph. This is disrupting. He was a man. He was going to take a wife. He had a plan. He was going to build this, a place for her. She, there was going to be this preparation that was all supposed to go according to a certain plan, and this is a disruption. It might even be a disappointment. And I think one of the reasons why this just stands out to me as such a disruption is we are in such a season of disruption in our lives. There is not a person participating in this worship service, watching this wherever you're watching it from, that has not felt some sort of disruption during this season, haven't you? Think about it. Think about the thing that you miss the most. Think about the thing that has felt most disrupted in your life. We're all off kilter. Even this last week, I was just reflecting on just how, how much this, the pandemic and stay-at-home orders and even the, these new orders, how much they are, they've changed the course of what my week looks like, what my day looks like, what my kid's day looks like, what their, what their life after school looks like, what their life in school looks like. It's changed the way we work. It's changed the way uh, we go to shop. It's changed everything. We have experienced complete disruption. And I want, as we continue on with this, I want to just note how God deals with this disruption, even that God is the author of this disruption, and what the response of Joseph is to this, and even just to reflect a little bit on what our response in this season to the season of disruption we're in is like. Look at verse 20. Joseph, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So Joseph, as he's considering about how to go about this process of being discreet and sending her away, God needs to show Joseph that this is the wrong direction. Now, my favorite, one of my favorite holiday movies is um, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Anybody? Planes, Trains, and Automobiles? Steve Martin, John Candy, two unlikely people having to find their way home. Although that, I think that's a Thanksgiving movie. Is it Thanksgiving or Christmas? It's Christmas. Whatever it is, one of my favorite parts of that movie is they're in a car and they hit black ice and they spin in a circle, right? You guys remember this? And once they stop, John Candy's driving, they just start out, but they're going, they're on a highway, but they're going in the wrong direction on the highway, and a car pulls up next to them, and they're yelling out the window, you're going the wrong way. And John Candy turns to Steve Martin, he says, how do they know where we're going? Anyway, all that to say, the angel shows up in a dream, and he says to Joseph, you're going the wrong way. Sometimes I wish, sometimes I wish that God would just show up like that. Sometimes he does, right? And we're like, how does he know where I'm going? But God is saying to Joseph, Joseph, 
you're going the wrong way. There are a few things that the angel says to Joseph that deserve some comment from us. So he says this. The first thing he says is, Joseph, son of David. Now the reader has already gone through in the first chapter of Matthew where it says Abraham begat Isaac and Isaac begat Jacob and Jacob begat Joseph and it goes down all the way down and all these begats and begats and begats and you end up with Joseph. It all goes, goes all the way from, uh, from Abraham to David to Joseph. The reader knows that Joseph is a descendant of David. But the angel shows up and says, Joseph, son of David. Don't forget who you are, son of David. You may have forgotten who you are, but this is important. We need you to be the legal father. Even though this is not your child, you did not beget this child. As a matter of fact, it says so-and-so beget, so-and-so beget, so-and-so beget, so-and-so. And then in this passage, it says the child is been begotten by the Holy Spirit. Even though, Joseph, you are not the father, we need you to be the legal father. We need this child legally in your house because this child is going to be a king. You play a much greater role than you even realize, Joseph, son of David. And then the angel says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. And I think the angel is saying, you think what you're doing is because of righteousness, divorcing her and sending her away. You think it's because, it's a, because of righteousness. You're afraid, Joseph. You think you're doing this because of righteousness. You're doing this because you're afraid. And I think sometimes we need someone to yell out the car window and say, you're going the wrong way, and you're going the wrong way for the wrong reasons. Joseph, you're afraid. Your dismissing of this betrothal is not righteousness, it's fear. What are you afraid of? Maybe you're afraid of your reputation. Maybe ostracization. Or what might come of this. But the angel says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. You're not doing this because of righteousness, you're doing this because you're afraid. Sometimes we need people to just step up and just tell us, look, you're not doing this for the reasons you think you're doing it for, you're doing it because you're afraid. It says, the, whole, the child that she is bearing, Joseph, son of David, do not have fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, is begotten of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the creative power of God that this is, this is, God has done a creative work in Mary's womb. It's not like the Greco-Roman gods who come and, and, and copulate with humans. This is about God's creative power in Mary and the incarnation. And the angel is going to remind Joseph This child, not only are you special, Joseph, you are the son of David, 
and Mary is special. God's creative power is at work within her, but this child is going to be special. It says, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. You shall name him, uh, in Aramaic it would be Yeshua, um, and that's actually the, the Aramaic way of saying the Greek or the, um, the Hebrew name Joshua, what we would know as Joshua. The word Jesus, the name Jesus, is actually a Romanized form of Yeshua. In Greek, it's Jesus, and so then it becomes Jesus. And it means Joshua, Yeshua, means the Lord saves. The Lord saves. You will call his name the Lord saves, Jesus, Joshua, because he will save his people from their sins. I think one thing you don't get in the English translation, um, as you read it in Greek, the angel says emphatically that the, the he, he will save his people from their sins. He is emphatic. And so the angel is saying, if there can be an emphasis on this, he's saying, you will, she will give birth to a, um, to a son. You will call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. Or he himself will save his people from their sins. I think it's interesting because later on, other people will call him something else. You will call his name Joshua because he will save his people from their sins. They will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. We'll get to that. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. In Isaiah, it says, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. We have these two names, Yeshua and Emmanuel. Yeshua, the Lord saves, and Emmanuel, God with us. You will call him Jesus. They will call him Emmanuel. He will save people from their sins, and his very presence, people will recognize, is God among them. Verse 24, when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. It says he took his wife. He received his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph awoke and did something that when he went to sleep, he didn't think he would do. He woke up. What the angel had said to him, he felt the weight of it. He counted the cost. And he ended the waiting period and brought Mary into his home. The implication is that there was the betrothal, the waiting period. Mary had been found at be with child. So it she was showing three months in or so, something like that. And so rather than take a year, he ended the betrothal period and he brought her into his home immediately. Probably for, forwent the, uh, the process, the actual marriage ceremony, and he simply brought her into his household. He eventually takes Jesus into his home Jesus, who is King, Savior, and God. Now, 
The disruption in Joseph's life, let's go back to his disruption. The disruption is severe. A righteous man with a reputation, a righteous man with a reputation found in the middle of this controversy, in the middle of this scandal. It is, it is a severe disruption to his plans. But what Joseph embraces is that the, the disruption, as severe as it is, is good. It's a huge disruption, but God reveals it as a blessing. And I guess as we sit in the middle of a disrupted world and a disrupted time, it might be helpful if we just took a second and we recognized that whenever God does a work in this world, it is disrupting. There is no time when God does a work in this world, when God invades this world, it will always be disrupting. It will always be experienced at first as an unwelcome disruption. You go back into Scripture and you find places where God comes into a situation, it will disrupt the status quo. It will disrupt and it will make people angry because no one likes to be disrupted from their life, from the things that are predictable. But whenever God enters into a situation, it will at first always feel disrupting. Very likely, you might be in a season where you are experiencing what is an unwelcome disruption. And look, there might be times even in your own story of faith that when you came to faith in Jesus, at first when God came into your life and showed you the reality of the situation, it felt very disrupting. It felt very disorienting. But here's the thing. When that disruption is embraced as the work of God, a disruption can be experienced as a blessing. And we're in a season of disruption that many people who experience Jesus experience Jesus as a disruption at first. Once he is embraced, the disruption becomes new creation. Think about this. New creation is always a disruption. New creation means you got to move the furniture around, right? Like, when you, were, when you were a young couple and you were having a baby, you started moving furniture around. Why? Because there was new life that was coming in. Whenever new life comes in, you've got to rearrange the furniture. Whenever God's going to do something new, he disrupts, he moves the couch, he moves the bed, he moves everything. In our lives, he disrupts and he moves and removes and reorients because God wants to do a new thing. And dare I say, if you are not open to disruption or even open to the convincing of God of a new way, the work of God will be pressed down in your life. I say that to myself as well. If I'm not open to disruption, if I'm not open to being convinced that a new way is better, the work of God in my life will be pressed 
down because whenever God does the work of new creation is always disrupting. New creation always rearranges the furniture. It always shuffles the deck. New creation always puts things in new places. Joseph's openness to the disruption of God allows for new life, new creation. It allows three things in this passage, three things in this passage that Matthew wants to make clear. It allows Jesus is king. He's the son of David. Jesus is king. He needs a messianic line, and it will be through Joseph. I, you know, and the angel just alludes to it, but you could imagine like, hey, Joseph, you're the guy. Like, you're the guy. We need the Davidic, we need the Davidic line, and it's coming through you. Step up. Jesus will be king, and Joseph's openness to this disruption allows Jesus to be king. Jesus will save. Jesus' role is to save people from their sin. And he is named by Joseph, Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus, the Lord saves. Joseph's openness to this disruption also makes a way that God can be experienced among his people. They will call him Emmanuel. Jesus' presence is tantamount to that of God himself. They will call him Emmanuel. You'll call him Jesus. They will call him Emmanuel. Whenever God shows up, there's disruption. And where there is disruption, you can bet that God is at work. I gotta say, I, true, true confessions, self-report. This last week, um, I, I was down about the pandemic and what's going on and rising numbers and real threat and... Um, we keep experiencing this, that COVID infections and the, the, and the impact of the pandemic gets closer and closer and closer and closer. And this is a tough week. I don't know about you. I don't know where you, how you're feeling. I can just, I know about me. Like I was discouraged. I was down. I still am a little bit. I got to tell you, I'm preaching. I'm preaching on the idea that you got to embrace disruption. And I'm like, I don't know if I want to, right? You might be in the same spot. But I have to remind myself that when God wants to work in this world, he disrupts things. And if you're in the middle of disruption, you can bet if you look around long enough that you're going to find God doing something, that it's going to be God's hand somewhere in there that is rearranging that furniture. I suppose just today, as we think about this passage and the disruption and Joseph's embrace of disruption allows Jesus to be king, allows Jesus to be savior, allows Jesus to be God with us. I suppose to ask you at home, what do you need in this passage? What's standing out? Where are the places where you're experiencing the work of God in your life through this disruption? And where do you need to invite God to show you the path to say, hey, you're going the wrong way with this? Where do you need to embrace this disruption? And where do you, need, do you need to experience the kingship of Jesus? Do you need to experience the forgiveness that he will save you from your sins? Or do you need to experience just the simple idea that God 
is with me. Because in this passage this morning, Matthew wants you to know and to remember that Jesus is king. Jesus has come to save you from your sins. And when you invite Jesus into your life, it means that God is with you. You know, Matthew begins his gospel that Jesus' name is Emmanuel. Do you know what the last line of the gospel of Matthew is? After the Great Commission, Jesus says, Behold, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. I will be with you always. On the bookends of the gospel of Matthew, at the very beginning, Jesus is God with us. And at the very end, I will be with you always. Wherever you are, I I just want you to recognize whether you're sitting on a couch, on your bed, at your kitchen table, wherever you are, Jesus is there with you. They will call him Emmanuel, God with us. And Jesus says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. He's with you right now. Wherever you are, he is with you. Whether you can recognize it or not, he is with you. And he's here in this disruption somewhere. And our job right now, our job this week, my job this week, your job this week, is to ask God, where are you? Jesus, where are you in this disruption? Because if there is disruption, God is around somewhere because there cannot be new life without disruption. Let's pray together. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. Father, we we thank you for this time. We thank you for this passage, this familiar passage. We give ourselves to you. If we're going the wrong way in attitude or wherever we're heading, that you would turn us around. Maybe you... If you would send an angel in our dreams, we'll take that. But if you'll give us other things, other ways of telling us, maybe this is one of those ways that you are saying to your people, find me in this. Don't fight against this disruption. Lean into it. Find me in this disruption. Father, help us. Help us to do that. Help us to love you with our whole hearts. Help us to love you and to find you, have eyes that see where you are at work among us. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.